0: Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. The discussion of race within the US has primarily been painted as black and white. And in this discussion, many groups have been forgotten about such as native Americans, Asian Americans, as well as Latino Americans. In particular, Latino Americans, because they've been out in the West, they have many ways been treated as a forgotten group, but they're now gaining more attention. Furthermore, Latino Americans have been treated as immigrants. However, as we look at American history, Many of them did not cross the border. The border crossed them. And so they've been within the U.S. for centuries, but are still treated as newcomers. With the rising concerns about immigration, there are rising concerns about Latino politics. And political science has attempted to try to understand Latino politics better, but even it has failed to some degree look at the polls and the way in which the political pundits have talked about Latino vote, there are many who argue that this misunderstanding of the Latino experience has led to a variety of misconceptions about their wants and needs, their level of political participation, as well as what the immigrant experience is really like in the U S amongst Latinos. In this episode, I interview professor Matthew Barreto of the university of California, Los Angeles's political science department. Many of you may remember Professor Barreto's name from my interview with Professor Christopher Parker at the University of Washington. They are the co-authors of Change We Can't Believe In, a book that dictates the rise of the Tea Party, and also they're currently examining the rise of Donald J. Trump to the presidency. Today, we'll be talking about his work on Latino decisions, a polling firm that he began with Professor Gary Segura, who is currently the dean of UCLA's Public Policy School. The purpose of Latino decisions is to improve upon our knowledge of Latino public opinion. And in doing so, they hope to give nuance to Latino experience and dispel many of the myths we have regarding the Latino experience and Latino life. We begin the interview with Professor Barreto discussing the impetus behind Latino decisions.
1: So Gary and I started this uh, about 10 years ago now. Um, We were involved in a consulting project when we were both professors at the University of Washington, and some folks reached out to us and said, hey, could you jump onto this project and give us some advice on this questionnaire? And they had hired a fairly reputable, national, well-known D.C. pollster to do some polling of Latinos. So Gary and I joined, along with some other folks as consultants, and um, we were just blown away with the lack of cultural sensitivity, awareness, and even some violations of basic social science norms that you and I would just laugh at if we saw it presented at a political science conference. And we thought this is what is passing as very high-end, reputable uh, D.C. polling of our community. And so we did the project. We learned a lot actually doing the project, but we came away from it thinking there's a real need Uh, and a desire to try to get it right when it comes to the Latino community, to try to get the polling numbers right, to try to get questions worded from a culturally appropriate way. And so that's when we started. We started in the 2008 cycle um, trying to work with Latino advocacy groups who we knew would be receptive and want to work with uh, Latino social science scholars on these projects. And so we did that. Um, We did our first couple of polls, I remember, in late 2007. Uh, heading into the 2008 presidential election and uh, really started going in that 2008 presidential election, just trying to get accurate data from the Latino community on the radar of people who were involved in this sort of larger political consulting and just media information news gathering so that they could tell the story right of what Latinos wanted to see when it came to politics. That's really where it started. And, um, from there, we've just increased our um, number of uh, projects each year.
0: So this is a large polling effort. Were there any hiccups you had along the way? Or, or I guess, what did you have to do to convince larger communities to go along with you and kind of move away from these other firms that had uh, taken up a certain level of the market share?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest part was try to breaking through. So Gary and I both um, you know, had tenure at the time as political science professors, and so We thought we knew what we were doing, and at least our community had validated us in terms of our research. But when you try to get into the D.C. polling world or political consulting world, it's totally separate. You know, they looked at us like a couple of dumb political science professors who didn't know the first thing about the real world. And so it was hard. We had to go and give a lot of presentations. We had to meet a lot of new folks. We had to go to their conferences, their conventions, speak on panels and try to demonstrate our expertise to show that we really did understand public opinion and voting patterns in the Latino community. We had to demonstrate that we could turn projects around, you know, in two weeks and not take two years to get something published. And so we did that. And that's why we turned to, at the beginning, a lot of Latino advocacy groups that we had previous relationships with or who had trusted us. So we were doing projects for Naleo the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. Uh, we were doing projects for the National Council of La Raza, uh, which is now called Unidos U.S. And we were doing uh, projects for those sorts of uh, organizations that maybe had already heard of us, had trusted us, knew that we had a good reputation in the academic space. And when they then went onto the national stage to present their findings, They could bring us along and say, hey, these are our pollsters. These are the guys collecting the data. And from there, we just slowly would get one more project, one more project. Uh, But it took a very long time, and it was very, very difficult in the first few years. I mean, we probably worked two or three or, or, or so years before we really had a large number of projects happening on a regular basis, and we would just take the projects we could get and then try to promote the results.
0: What were some of the biggest mistakes or bad assumptions that these pollsters had in terms of studying the Latino population that you had to correct? I'd say
1: right off the bat, the first was that Spanish speakers are not voters. And so there was this general sense that, yes, uh, Univision and Telemundo have big ratings. They have a lot of followers. But that's where the non-voters are and that the voters are only over here in the English-speaking community, and you can just message them in the same way that you would message anyone else. And so the first thing we had to do was demonstrate right off the bat that, no, there's a huge number of immigrants who are naturalized citizens in voting, and we're not just seeing that in Miami or Los Angeles, but across the country immigrants were driving really the growth of the Latino electorate in uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s. And so those folks were coming in and you needed to reach people, not only when you implemented the poll, uh, you needed to have bilingual callers, uh, but then when you did your political outreach, you needed to have a, a message in Spanish. So that was probably the first thing. And it still amazes me, but you will still see polls there in, in your state of Texas, where they're they're doing a lot of polling over the Senate election, you'll still see polls that are conducted 100% in English today in 2018 in the state of Texas. Um, in fact, it's probably a majority of them that are conducted that way. And so we come in and say, listen, there are a huge number of communities that are not English dominant. It may not be their first language. They're more comfortable in Spanish. They are watching Spanish language TV, Spanish language radio, and their Facebook feed is in Spanish let's reach out to them in the language that they're the most comfortable. Uh, And so I think that was really the first thing that we had to help people overcome and understand. And you have seen that in a lot of places with really the strong voter participation rates by immigrant communities. We'll continue to try to make that point clear as we do our research and outreach that you don't want to take those for granted. And then the second, uh, I would say, is that when you get to the English-speaking community, there's some similarities here with the African-American community. That is, the English-speaking Latino community is identifying, for the most part, as Latino and does not always resonate with these same ads, these same outreach messages that are often geared towards more middle, upper-class, suburban swing voters. And so what we've been trying to inform folks is that when you go to even the English-speaking community, don't just assume that your messages are working. Try to find ways to understand those folks. They may be the children of immigrants. They may still resonate to the immigrant issue because of their parents. But you you need to reach them in English, uh, but do so from a culturally appropriate uh, lens. And so we've been pushing those two messages out pretty much consistently, I think, from the start. And as I said, there's still a need to do that in 2018.
0: While you do have a lot of work in Latino politics, you're a political scientist first. As, you know. If you think of the work you've done with behavior, work you've done with political institutions, and the fact that you're, you're a pollster. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is that it seems to give us something that, that was missing. And I think of you as a political scientist who uses Latinos as a subject to study, but you're a political scientist first. And so, Given what you've studied, what is the importance or why is it important that we understand the complexity of Latino social and political life? What can that help us to understand, I guess, broader issues uh, in America as well as broader issues dealing with American politics?
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think you phrased that exactly right, Eric, that is that you know, we're interested in these communities maybe because this is where we grew up, but we don't see it as a niche or a subfield. We just see that as part of American politics. That is, we're trying to understand what is happening in these communities, why people are motivated, why they are not, uh, just from the same lens that anyone's studying the political institutions and processes in America. And so for me, I think what that is is that when I was coming out of graduate school and working on my dissertation, there was an overwhelming consensus That Latinos were bad voters, that they were less engaged, that they were more focused on Latin America, that they weren't really that committed to the civic institutions in America. And I didn't always see that in the communities where I was. I saw more engaged communities when we had candidates and issues that resonated. And so I started you know, tackling from the start these age-old questions of voter participation rates, public opinion, support for the different political parties in America. These the same questions that had been top questions being analyzed in American politics for decades. And I was just doing that uh, to, from the perspective of the Latino community. And I think what that tells us then about America overall is some of the same findings we have resonate with Latinos. That is, when you do outreach, when you have candidates that that resonate with communities, when they conduct get-out-the-vote drives, when they do voter mobilization, when they talk about issues, you see the same things. And so we've documented uh, places and instances where Latinos have voted at higher rates uh, than whites, where immigrants, naturalized citizens, have voted at higher rates than U.S.-born whites. Uh, and what we're finding is that uh, Latinos are voters and Americans just like anyone else. And I feel like it was similar to some of the early uh, African-American politics research where there were findings of in-group identity that were propelling, and there were in-group institutions that were propelling sense of civic engagement. And we wanted to demonstrate that, that that was happening in the Latino community when it was, when it wasn't. Why wasn't it? Why was there that lack? So I think it speaks volumes to how our institutions engage and mobilize uh, our communities, whether you're talking about Latinos, African Americans, maybe that you could relate this to uh, American Muslims, a growing group that's getting a lot of attention, or other groups, uh, LGBT groups or, or, or other groups. How do groups in our diverse and pluralistic society, how do groups get engaged? When do different groups feel like they are a valuable member of society that has equal footing. And those are some of the questions I've been grappling with uh, from a research perspective uh, that I think will continue, regardless of what groups we're talking about in America. Those are the questions you should be asking today in American politics.
0: Is there any particular political event that we were not prepared for because we did not spend more time looking at Latino public opinion?
1: Mm, well, yes, definitely. I mean, that's a great question. I think that there's been a long line of of those over the years, not just with Latinos, but African Americans and other groups as well. You know, but for sure, I think um, the first thing that comes to mind, at least in contemporary events, is the 2006 uh, immigration marches and the aftermath of what happened there. Uh, and those, you know, were the largest uh, attended Series of political protest marches in the nation's history. It was estimated to be between 5 and 7 million participants in those from March through uh, July of 2006 across America. And people were not necessarily ready for those. They saw these undocumented immigrants as being marginalized, as being voiceless, not being able to vote or really even petition their elected members of Congress. And so They were on the sidelines. That was what political science theory would suggest. Uh, But instead what we found was that they were very well integrated into society, into civic institutions. They had political voice. And they recognized how these series of laws that the U.S. Congress was considering – were going to deeply affect them. And it wasn't just undocumented immigrants who participated, but many naturalized citizens, immigrants who had become U.S. citizens, and then the children uh, and the grandchildren, the second and third generations, those born in the United States um, who had that connection. And so the political science traditional theory didn't see that interconnectedness as it ranged from undocumented communities to the children, the U.S. born. They didn't see the connections to the naturalized citizens. And so we had these huge protest marches that led to some increases in voter registration, political voice, but really political organizing. We can really trace the rise of uh, the Dream Act movement and the Dreamers to those sort of larger rallies that were taking place in 2006. Many of those who became leaders in the Dream movement were teenagers or even junior high kids and participated in some of those 2006 rallies, and then they continued to sort of Really push and promote. So, you know, that was something that I think our traditional theories wouldn't have understood well. And now we have a much better understanding for how marginalized groups can influence outcomes, how they gain political power and representation. Um, and so it's important to continue looking at those. I think we have some lessons today. We can extend those same things and the lessons today to the protest against the Muslim ban that we saw at the start of the Trump administration or the protests that we've seen recently in Texas over the family separations that were happening and all of the members of congress think about all the members of congress on the democratic side who are now saying hey I want to go tour these facilities that was all brought about from immigrant activism from these folks who you know people are acting on behalf of their brothers and sisters who are being locked up and detained for seeking asylum and refugee status and that's something that's it's hard to see it's hard to see how a voiceless or a powerless community might have that amount of activism in them. So it's important to continue to look at those. I think of, you know, just in terms of recommended reading, uh, Chris Opeta Milan's book that's just come out on this topic and really looking at the history of the 2006 marches and and forward really is required and saying, let's go look at these voiceless, under-researched, understudied communities and see how they can have an impact.
0: One of the things that you pointed out is there's always been this juxtaposition between those who are naturalized citizens and those who are um, newly immigrated, whether it be documented or undocumented. Is there a distinctness in their attitudes? Uh, So is there, one, a level of group consciousness that crosses this, I guess, born in the U.S. versus naturalized or immigrant divide? But on top of that, are there also differences in terms of what they would like out of the U.S. or kind of their social political demands?
1: Yeah, definitely. There's um, large distinctions within the Latino community. One of the mistakes I think that people make a lot of times is in painting a broad brush across the Latino community. And that's easy to do when we see activism and when we see uh, mobilization around issues where people care about. But and, and we're seeing that right now on the immigration issue. We are seeing unity on that issue. Um, however, Uh, There's a lot of diversity within the Latino community at the same time. And, you know, there are differences that people are looking towards policy issues, towards, you know, just everyday basic sorts of needs, towards, you know, um, attitudes even towards uh, the treatment and incorporation of immigrants. This was something that really until the 06 rallies, uh, until we had seen that sort of level of antagonism towards immigrants, we were seeing differences. So we we constantly want to be looking at issues of years in the U.S. How many years have you or your family been in the U.S.? What generation are you? Were you born here? Were your parents born here? Were your grandparents born here? And then, of course, class is a considerable important variable in understanding Latino acculturation and, and really being able to distinguish between immigrants and subsequent generations who have integrated very effectively, and moved up the chain. These are variables that are, are very important in being able to distinguish. What happened was, really going back to the 06 rallies in, in California, going back to the, the Pete Wilson years, 1994 and Proposition 187, when these new waves of attacks
0: The Pete Wilson that Professor Barroda was referring to is former governor of California, Pete Wilson, who served as governor from 1991 to 1999. When Governor Wilson took over the state of California, it was in the midst of an economic downturn and had a budget shortfall. Governor Wilson took part in a variety of activities to try to shore up the state economically, including raising taxes, as well as changing welfare benefits in an attempt to provide fewer resources to make sure that the state was able to meet its budget concerns. He also developed a tough on crime policy as a way to shore up certain aspects of the state. But in particular to Latino politics, he was a supporter of Proposition 187. which was a 1994 ballot initiative which restricted illegal immigrants from access to state services such as health and education. While Governor Wilson and supporters of Prop 27 argued that this was mainly economic, with the argument being that undocumented immigrants were using up a great deal of state resources while not paying taxes, Many studies have found that the strong support for this is really based upon immigrant animus and racial animus in regards to this. And so many people have put the economic argument into question. Furthermore, this policy ignited the Latino population throughout the state and has actually harmed the Republican Party in the state of California for for many years with Arnold Schwarzenegger being the only Republican to win the governor's seat since. Now, one thing about Prop 187 is that it does have a strong legacy because several states adopted this policy shortly after California did. And so while Prop 187 may be seen as very unpopular, many states such as Texas uh, also adopted similar policies to restrict the access of undocumented immigrants to certain government services.
1: uh, Going back to the, the Pete Wilson years, 1994 and Proposition 187. When these new waves of attacks against immigrants and Latinos in general unfolded, that we're of course seeing extended today, it started to create more unity. And we draw a lot of lessons from uh, the sort of idea of linked fate and group consciousness in the African-American community. That is, we know there's incredible diversity uh, across ideological and class lines within the African-American community. But sometimes it becomes difficult to escape that when your community feels under attack and you look and you see allies that have your same last name and your same immigrant experience and your same skin color, and that unity becomes stronger. So I think we're in one of those moments. You know? So it's, it's sort of an answer of, yes, there's incredible diversity, and we do see those distinctions. But in the Latino community today, when you have such strong language and such strong policies coming out of the White House, it tends to breed more unity. And so to the extent that there is that diversity and, and differences, we're at least in a moment right now politically where we're seeing those differences being put aside, even though they do exist, uh, because people are very upset and they see that they have more in common with one another and they and they want to stand up for other immigrants uh, rather than try to distance themselves. So it's really a fascinating thing. I welcome more people to study this. When will that go away? When will we see U.S.-born Latinos moving away from the immigrant experience and distancing themselves? The threat and the attacks that people are facing, we think, is continuing to drive that that sort of solidarity that's happening right now.
0: To what degree has Hispanic or being Latino become racialized as opposed to being an ethnicity, where we think of racial categories as permanent, handed down through birth, whereas an ethnicity is much more fluid? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think this threat has led to um, such, such as in the case of blacks, a racialized identity to where the reactions of whether it be the government or outside forces have clearly forced groups of individuals who may not necessarily be the same to see themselves as the same, at least within the U.S. context.
1: Yeah, I think we're moving in that direction. That's what's really um, fascinating uh, for us as scholars to study is is who feels that strength of identity? Who feels that racialization and who doesn't? So the difference, I think, is that within the African-American community, it's almost impossible to not feel that racialized threat. There are certainly some people who don't feel as strong, but at some point there are national events that happen and people are reminded about that. And we're starting to approach that level of hostility, I think, within the Latino experience. And when immigrants regardless of their citizenship status, uh, when people who speak Spanish, regardless of whether they were born in the United States or not, are racialized and called the names when new policies are put against them as a result of their ethnicity, then you are racializing that. And we're seeing that come up in focus groups, in survey research. More and more people are calling this out and saying, you know, there's racism against Latinos. I mean, people are saying this open-ended when we ask them what's happening in the country today. And so I think as that happens, the Latino community, as I was saying earlier, they sort of hunker down a little bit. You see more in common with your group members if you perceive that. But not everyone perceives it, and that's one of the most interesting things to try to unpack is there are some who say, yes, I am Hispanic. I'm fourth generation or third generation, but I don't feel that connection You know, when when they're talking about immigrants, they're not talking about me. What we usually find are those folks are folks who are um, higher in class status, perhaps for multiple generations. Their parents had a college degree. They have a college degree. They've moved outside of uh, enclaves. But that switch can turn back on in a moment because the racialization of Latinos today doesn't have any sort of bounds. So if you're with a group of friends and speaking in Spanish, or if you're, Just watching the news and you hear the language that is being used to discuss immigrants, suddenly something goes off in your head and you say, hey, wait a minute, they're talking about my grandparents or they're talking about everyone who speaks Spanish. So we're seeing more people, even those who were distant, we're seeing more people feel those attacks. And I do think that's increasing the racialization against Latinos and that that is increasing this group identity right now. And again, the question is how long will that last? Do we see that going on? But there's no question that it's at play. And it is increasing, and it's going to be increasing at least through the 2020 election cycle. We can we can bet on that. And then it will be unclear. You know, will the country change? Will the Republican Party open up and try to incorporate Latinos and welcome Latinos in a way that they previously were able to do with other immigrant communities, Italians, Irish, German, uh, other immigrant groups who could find a place in the Republican Party and not be called... Uh, names for being immigrants. Uh, if that happens, you might be able to roll back some of that racialization. But that rollback will take a very long time. And sadly, we don't see any signs of that. We only see signs of it increasing. Every, I mean, Eric, every day we turn on the TV, there's a new policy from the White House or a quote saying that we're invading this country, that we're destroying this country, we're infesting this country. And it's really the sort of language we haven't seen publicly since Jim Crow era and um, you know, it's really sad. And I think that's what's, what's driving politics right now in our community.
0: So in thinking about your work overall, and I realize that that does have a very clear substantive purpose where you are informing the public and the media and others about what is the Latino experience, but pulling this back, I guess to, to the academic perspective, what things in particular have you done to advance political science? So what are some of the things that you've done to correct or advance the way political scientists think about, one, Latino behavior, but then uh, political behavior in general?
1: Well, I guess, you know, I'm not sure if I'm the right one to answer that. You know, I have to look and see what other people are, are, are saying in writing uh, about some of the stuff that I've written. Um, but I think the two things that I've tried to put my um, sort of finger on in trying to help understand and, you know, get right, is first, under what conditions do Latino Americans behave and perform politically like everyone else, meaning under what conditions do we turn out at high rates? Do we participate at high rates? And so documenting those, first just to document that they exist, and then to unpack them and say why, I think has been important, and I think people have built on that and said, yes, there are conditions. Hold on. We do have evidence of Latinos turning out at high rates and and um, voting as a block and voting in support of issues that, that are mobilizing. So that's one, and I'll continue to work on that as we hear this you know, myth of the sleeping giant and of underperformance in the Latino community—it's not a static. It's not always a community that underperforms. In fact, there's lots of evidence of engagement. Uh, and then the second, I think, is if you think about political attitudes and political behavior more generally, I think of the work that I have been doing with Chris Parker that we're continuing as the country is changing to think about how white Americans are responding to the changing demographics and the changing political influence that different groups have and how that is uh, creating this reaction that we call reactionary conservatism um, and what lasting effects that might have. We're we're certainly in this moment that we think had been going on uh, really since the George W. Bush years but was kept under wraps by a white, Christian, Southern president mm-hmm. who symbolically put any concerns at ease. But those demographic changes and those political changes were happening and then, of course, was really unleashed and taken over when Obama was elected president and, then, and now just continuing further. So documenting that, documenting the way that some white Americans have responded to this sort of change in status, this change in political influence. Uh, And what that means for American democracy, not just for public opinion, what does that mean for a democracy, you know, I think is an important project and uh, one that Chris and I are certainly continuing to work on and will be working on for quite a while.
0: There's this idea that's been advanced by uh, individuals, Samuel Huntington, uh, along with a number of others. The Samuel Huntington I'm referring to is a former theorist in the Department of Government at Harvard University. Huntington is known as a very strong advocate for a variety of ideas, specifically ideas that support the importance of Western civilization. One of his latest, one of his last works before he passed away was a book titled Who Are We?, which talked about the American national identity. And in particular, Huntington argued that the influx of immigrants, specifically immigrants from Latin America, was problematic for maintaining American identity. He argued that because they spoke Spanish, they were geographically located in the, uh, primarily in the West, but also had close proximity to home where they could travel back and forth, that they would not assimilate. And so because of this, this would change the nation's identity and in many ways deteriorate the way we understood America. Several studies have actually found that Huntington's theory uh, about this was was incorrect. And so while he theorized that Latinos were not assimilating, the empirical work which tested this found that Latinos were assimilating at a very quick rate. As Professor Barretta will point out, Many of the arguments and fears that Huntington expressed were unfounded, and that we're finding that Latino Americans, Asian Americans, and other immigrant groups are assimilating at a very fast rate, either as fast or faster than we found from European immigrants. Uh, There's this idea that's been advanced by uh, individuals like Samuel Huntington, uh, along with a number of other conservative uh, political theorists, that when we think about the American identity, that the influx of immigrants, specifically Latino immigrants, is going to change the national identity. Uh, do you have any evidence to suggest that, one, that they're not assimilating quickly, that they are in some ways opposed to norms, things of that nature?
1: I mean, if you look historically since the large waves of migration, and of course, discounting and setting aside the populations who were already part of uh, Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. But if you look at the sort of more contemporary modern waves of migration post-World War II, there's nothing but evidence of incorporation, assimilation, and acculturation. All of the evidence points to rapid uh, acculturation in terms of language, uh, education, class. Latinos into the second generation have the highest rates of military service of any racial or ethnic community. home ownership status rises dramatically after controlling for socioeconomic status. And so all of these other markers are there, and we're seeing that evidence. And that's why the sort of Huntington, who are we, clash of civilizations ideas, you know, is unfounded. What, what's happening is that migration has continued, and so they're blinded by it because they see immigrants speaking Spanish, and they say, you know, who are these people? They're refusing to assimilate. If they go back to those same immigrants 20 years later, they'll see that almost all of them are speaking English now. Mm -hmm. And their children are all speaking English. Now, they're just looking at a cross-section at a snapshot in time and seeing, you know, these Spanish speakers are here ruining our country. But, of course, they come with all of the same sort of underlying democratic values that already founded America in terms of hard work, in terms of Christian values, in terms of family uh, values – all of these same values are there, and you know, the immigrant experience is one of you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And the decision to migrate from your home country is itself that first sort of decision that the same you know, Europeans who landed on the East Coast and eventually marched their way across this country, contemporary immigrants are doing that same thing. They're saying there are better opportunities for us, for our family somewhere else, so let's go pursue those. And, you know, dozens of economic studies have, have documented the business creation, the economic ingenuity and inventiveness of immigrant communities, including of Mexican and Latino immigrant communities. So I think it's quite compatible. All of the evidence shows that. The problem is that people look at these small snapshots in time and they say, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of Spanish speakers here. What's wrong with you Latinos? And there are a lot of Spanish speakers here. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing we know today is that that acculturation process uh, is not a one-way street for Latinos in the way that it might have been uh, centuries ago for German and Italian immigrants. That is that many Latinos pick up English, assimilate, acculturate into America, but they also maintain that Latino identity in Spanish-speaking and other Latino customs and cultures. And so we shouldn't expect that shedding, that complete shedding of our identity. We should not expect that. That's not something that America demands. And so I think if that's what the Huntington disciples are looking for, they won't find that. But that's wrong to, to look
0: for. One of the things that one of our past guests, Travon Logan, talked about was understanding race not as a control variable, but uh, race as an experience. What has uh, political science or the other social science disciplines, what have they missed about the Latino experience? Uh, I know a lot of times we'll control for it in our models or try to account for it in some way, but in many ways it seems to be an experience. And so what are some of the key things about the experience that we're missing right now?
1: Well, I think at the top of that list is just the interconnectedness Mm -hmm. across migration uh, generations. And this happens in two ways. It happens one at the individual level, at the familial level. That is, you might have a Latino who is situated with two immigrant parents. and just controlling for um, Latino in a model, you don't understand that that person is very close, to the immigrant experience because their parents were immigrants. They may have even been undocumented and eventually have their status adjusted. And then you have, you could be the grandchildren of immigrants and have those close experiences with your grandparents and that those are informative. And so at the familial level, at the individual level, uh, there are differing degrees of exposure to the immigrant experience that is very important because that influences the way you look at Uh, America as welcoming, as unwelcoming, the way you look at immigration issues. The second is at the community level, that that immigration experience is interconnected. You may not have that experience in your own family, but you may live in a community or be proximate to a community that has high-density immigrant uh, populations, and you're reminded of it, and you feel a cultural connection to it, and you're reminded of your grandparents or even your great-grandparents for older uh, generations. And so there is no separate and distinct undocumented community, immigrant community, fifth generation Hispanics who don't connect. Those are very rare. The average Latino is very interconnected to the immigrant experience uh, at both the individual level and the community level. And so that's something that we constantly are trying to look at by looking at someone's generation, their proximity to the immigrant experience, these community-level variables, so you need to build in not only individual, but community-level variables, that context matters. The church you go to, uh, do you go to a Catholic church where the entire mass is done in Spanish? Uh, Because that's the church that your parents had always brought you to, and so now that's the church that you bring your children to. And I think that's the most important thing to, to get right, is that instead of just having these control variables to really understand that experience, Of connectedness to the immigration experience is very important in understanding Latinos as a community and as individuals. You might encounter somebody uh, who's a professional, who's a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a consultant somewhere. Uh, Maybe they live in the suburbs or maybe they live in a central city that's not heavily Latino now, but they might still have that experience with them from the previous 30, 40, or 50 years growing up. And we need to understand that so we can understand why they support these issues, why they View America the way they do.
0: So, one of the things you emphasize is the connection to the immigrant experience. Do you believe this continued connection to the immigrant experience is because, much like Asian Americans, Latino Americans are treated as uh, as a as an other that they're really not part of the group? Uh, so, if you have a Latino um, surname, that all of a sudden you're seen as a foreigner, somebody who may, not necessarily doesn't belong, but is. Uh, not the norm. Do you think that is why this connection to the the immigrant experience is just uh, just cannot be separated?
1: Well, that's certainly part of it. I mean, Latinos are continually, you know, racialized as as un-American and told to go home. I mean, Mm -hmm. a regular refrain when someone gets mad at Latinos, when counter protesters show up to protest against an immigrant rights march, almost always you hear people saying, go home, get out of my country. Okay? And so that is something that we're constantly faced with uh, and told. Um, and we saw this with the two women at the convenience store in Montana less than a month ago who were just buying snacks at a convenience store and speaking to each other in Spanish, and a Border Patrol agent happened to be there and asked them for their proof of citizenship. And we saw this infamously with Jorge Ramos when he was covering Donald Trump on the campaign trail and one of the Ramos supporters, after kicking him out of the press coverage, you know, said, get out of my country. You don't belong here. And he says, I'm an American citizen. So it certainly is part of that. And because of that, uh, we want to understand how people relate to that. Now, it's not the case that everyone has that experience, though. And I don't think it is as strong with Latinos as it is for Asian Americans. Uh, There's certainly, um, first of all, just as a demographic, more likely to be foreign-born And secondly, I think, stereotyped at a higher rate of of being foreign-born. But it it is continuing, and the national discourse is continuing that today, that otherization or that that un-American. But that's the refrain that we're most commonly uh, faced with, is that you don't belong here. This is not your country. Mm -hmm. And this is not your country, and you need to go home to another place. Regardless of where you are from, regardless of where your family is from, regardless of where you were born— this is not yours. And when you're faced with that, it does bring up those, those emotions and that connection to the immigrant experience.
0: So I guess if you could basically take over political science for a day, what would you tell them, this is what you need to focus on, quit ignoring this?
1: I think the interplay between racial groups is not getting uh, enough exposure. I think we're doing a good job. Uh, we're doing a better job of understanding Uh, the Latino experience of understanding the black experience and the Asian American experience. Um, But I think we need to have more on the interplay between groups. Why are we seeing blacks and Latinos together protesting police violence or together protesting immigration officials? Why are some whites reacting very strongly to black and Latino influence while other whites are joining those rallies and Mm -hmm. are going to the Muslim ban and the uh, immigration uh, rallies. And so I'd, I'd like to see more work done on the interplay and how groups interact with each other and why groups sort of uh, find themselves in as allies or as uh, opponents and what's underlying that. And then, you know, if we have the magic wand for a moment, maybe then pushing and saying, how can we promote uh, more opportunities for cohesion and how can we remove those uh, opportunities that promote division, I think would be really fascinating. Some people are working on that. I'd like to see more work done in that area.
0: One of the things that's important to remember when we talk about race in America is that it is complex and that the way we understand race dictates the policies we put forth. And that if we simplify the racial experience, we make very bad policies. As Professor Barreto has pointed out, that many of the myths or previously held beliefs we had about Latinos and Latino politics have led to really a misinterpretation and a bad understanding of Latinos. And this has hurt both parties and in many ways has created bad policy. What Professor Barreto hopes to do with Latino decisions, along with his other work, is to shed light on the experiences of Latino Americans, in the hope that this will help us better understand the political process. Again, he is a political scientist first, who uses Latinos as an example, and many of his findings and many of the, much of the work that he's done is an attempt to expand our understanding of the political world, and by understanding. And dispelling the myths of the Latino experience, hopefully we can dispel many of the myths and correct our assumptions regarding political behavior in general. Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas' LEITS Development Studio.